In today's video, we're going to be discussing a case that, if it wasn't for her mother, would still likely be considered an accidental death. Bonnie Craig was just 18 years old when her life was taken from her in September 1994, but there wouldn't be a conviction until 2011. Let's get into it. It's a mystery still looming over the Hampton Roads community. Matt, prosecutors are disappointed with today's results. Hey everyone, welcome back to a video where we talk about true crime. If you're new here, hi, my name is Amanda. And as you can tell by the intro and most likely the thumbnail, we are discussing the murder of Bonnie Craig. I want to start off my videos as much as I can talking about the victim. I think it's important to focus on the victim and to tell their story as much as we can while covering these cases. But please remember to do your own research, form your own opinions, and I'm only as good as the articles that I'm reading or the shows that I'm watching. So please remember that in the comments. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the video. So Bonnie Christine Craig was born to her mother, Karen, on March 30th, 1976. There really isn't much mentioned about Bonnie's biological father other than he really wasn't a part of her life. When Bonnie was just three years old, her mother married a man who would be known to her as her father. It appears that she had two younger brothers and a younger sister, Samantha, who I will mention a few times in this video. Bonnie was described as a responsible and caring older sister who often took pride in taking care of her younger siblings. She graduated from Service High School in 1994, where she was said to be a good student. She was the first girl on the wrestling team. She created Students Against Drunk Driving in her school and helped teach junior high students how to swim. It's said that she really enjoyed writing poetry and wanted to study psychology. Her friends at school would often call her Tigger because of her personality. She was bouncy fun and said to be just overall a really sweet girl. While in high school, Bonnie spent most of her time counseling students and she wanted to pursue a career in counseling because she felt that this was right for her. At the time of her death, Bonnie had a boyfriend named Cameron who she met while she was in high school and the two were dating when he left to attend college in California. Now, when he left, the two were in a committed relationship and expressed to each other by giving each other promised rings to show their devotion to each other and their relationship. Bonnie planned at some point to move to California to be with her boyfriend, Cameron. Something that I thought was the cutest thing was while they were separated, Bonnie would often record a cassette tape of her singing and just like talking to him and then send it to him, which I thought was the cutest thing. In September of 1994, while Bonnie was attending classes at the University of Alaska in Anchorage, she was also working at Sam's Clubs. Sam's Club. For you, for those of you who aren't sure what Sam's Club is, it's one of those stores where you can buy things in bulk. It's similar to like BJ's and Costco. I'm not sure if certain ones are located in different areas. I live in New York and we had all three, but I haven't seen a Sam's Club around upstate in a little bit. Now, Bonnie didn't drive, so two days a week she would walk 45 minutes to catch the bus that would bring her early enough to attend her classes. That would all change on Wednesday, September 28, 1994, when at about 2 p.m., a hiker would call 911 saying there was a body found in a pool of water below a 30-foot cliff at the McHugh Creek Recreation Area, which was about 12 miles outside of Anchorage, Alaska. Police and troopers, I believe they're called Alaskan State Troopers, but I'm going to use them interchangeably through this. You'll see I often do that. Police, detectives, investigators. But in regards to discussing this story, both the Alaskan State Troopers and police or just troopers, they all mean the same thing. Now, there's no identification found on the body, but police were able to use her class ring to identify her as 18-year-old Bonnie Craig. Bonnie's sister, Samantha, 
is able to tell you the exact moment when she found out her sister died. And that's something that I feel like is 100% relatable. Samantha would tell Dateline that she remembers her father, Gary, breaking down at hearing the news that Bonnie had died. During what troopers would call a hiking accident, at this time, they just believed that she fell and that was the end of it. At the time, Samantha, Bonnie, and her brother were staying at Gary's due to their mother, Karen. She was away at a wedding with her new husband for her brother-in-law. So she and her husband, Jim, they were in Florida at the time to celebrate Jim's brother's wedding when Karen received a call about Bonnie. Karen said that she just couldn't believe Like, she couldn't accept that it was real. That the whole flight back to Alaska, all she could think to herself was that Bonnie was going to be waiting for her at the airport. But sadly, Bonnie wasn't waiting for her at the airport. Once Karen arrived in Alaska, she would go straight to the funeral home to see her daughter, where it finally became real. She was so distraught that first day of seeing Bonnie that there were things that she missed. Like, she didn't notice right away. She was just obviously overwhelmed and upset at the fact that her daughter had passed away. But she would return the next day to see Bonnie and realize that there was actually defensive wounds on her hand. So the question is, was this an accidental fall down a cliff or was foul play involved? Karen worked as a reserve police officer, or I heard it called a volunteer undercover officer, and I'm not really sure at all what that means because I've never heard of it. But she did discuss it, that she was doing some undercover work, which we'll go into detail a bit more later. But if this is something you're familiar with, an undercover volunteer officer it sounds like that's a liability liability waiting to happen but let me know in the comments below if this is something that you are familiar with or you've ever really heard anybody do now as for the defensive wounds karen noticed bonnie had a fractured finger and a laceration across her ring finger that actually went all the way down to the bone a few other clues pointed that something more sinister had happened was that Karen immediately knew that there's no way Bonnie would ditch school to go hiking. Bonnie was dedicated. Bonnie wanted to go to college. She wanted to do something someday with her life. She wanted to be a counselor, so she wouldn't just skip school to go hiking. Also, Bonnie was found without a lot of the items that she would have left for school. Any of her personal items, like her ID, any money to ride the bus, probably her book bag. Where did all those items go? They weren't found with her. And then Bonnie was found 10 miles away from her bus stop and Bonnie didn't have a car and she didn't drive. So how did she get from her bus stop to the area where her body was found? So this, the, these were just a few of the things that were noticed and discussed that would point more to foul play than the original accident that state troopers thought it was. Oh yeah, there was also a leaf on top of the cliff that had one drop of blood on it. And this would lead investigators to believe that she was injured before she went over the cliff, not injured as she was falling off the cliff. This is when the investigation would change and police really started investigating the fall as something other than an accident. An autopsy was completed and it revealed that Bonnie had died from a series of blows to the back of her head. There were 11 separate lacerations that were made by a single object, indicating that it was just one episode of many blows. One of the blows had inflicted a skull fracture so deep alone that it would cause her death. Now, Karen wouldn't find out until six months after Bonnie died, but there would be a small laceration on Bonnie's vagina, which would be more consistent with being sexually assaulted rather than a consensual encounter. It was concluded that unknown male's DNA was detected on her clothing and inside of her. 
Now, during the course of the investigation, troopers would interview those closest to Bonnie, including neighbors, family, and friends. It was during these interviews that police found out that Bonnie would usually hurry out of her house at 5 a.m. to get to her 7 a.m. English class at the University of Alaska. One witness reported that they saw Bonnie early in the morning walking along her normal route to the bus stop, which was about two and a half miles from her home. So she was spotted walking this route at about 5.20 a.m. And then she would be seen about an hour later at 6.20 a.m. waiting for the bus by another witness. So another witness saw her waiting for the bus. It's reported that a witness saw Bonnie speaking to someone at the bus stop in a dark colored car. Police also made sure at that point that she never made it to the University of Alaska and no one saw her alive after being seen at the bus stop again. Now, she was found later that day, like I said, at Hugh Creek. So troopers would start to speak to those who may have seen something that day in the area. It's reported that the day Bonnie was found, a dark colored passenger car was in the parking lot at about 8 a.m. Troopers believe that they worked hard to find this perpetrator, saying that they even would ride Bonnie's bus route every day for a week straight to talk to people on the bus who rode the bus with Bonnie every day in that morning to see if they saw something out of the ordinary or something that could help them. But Karen did not feel that troopers were giving it their all. She was worried that they would miss something that was extremely important. So she began to get frustrated with the investigation and tension would grow between the troopers and Karen so much so that at one point they just stopped returning her calls, which is extremely sad. Like I can understand that maybe some days it's frustrating to have someone on your ass, but also her daughter's a victim of a murder. Like I feel like she deserves at least a phone call back. But Karen would say that she let this murder consume her, which I do think is completely understandable as a mother of three children. I think that I would unfortunately do that same thing. I think that there are a few ways that people can handle this type of tragedy and some throw them into it with 100% like it's their main purpose. I just covered, I just recorded that little snippet on Natalie Holloway and her mother. Her mother and her father put everything they had into it, the money. At one point, they both were staying in Aruba looking for Natalie. And then I watched a documentary about it that sh- that went into detail about how they went looking for, or I guess Dave, it wasn't them, it was more just Dave, how they were trying to find the remains back in like 2012. It's all consuming and to not have answers can cause some sort of obsession towards it. And that's, in my opinion, completely understandable. But according to Karen, this is pretty upsetting now for her to discuss because she wasn't the mother that she wanted to be to her other children. And again, I feel like that's understandable as well. Like sometimes you become so obsessed and engulfed in it that other things suffer. It's unfortunate, but it's a part of life. Troopers would say that they didn't trust Karen with information in this case. By this, I mean that they didn't trust her to not release details, to not talk about it, because she, at one point, was a news anchor, so she used her contacts to try and get information out, made it seem like the troopers weren't doing their job, that sort of thing. So there was a lot of tension, like I said, between Karen and the police. But eventually, the police would allow Karen to see the autopsy report, which is where Karen found out that her daughter had been aid and the head wounds that she received, which I am sure is extremely heartbreaking for her mother to hear. However, I'm sure at trial she would have heard it. But I assume that this really pushed her and her family more to find out who killed their mother, daughter, and sister. While hoping for some tips into the murder, Bonnie's family and friends would hand out flyers, bumper stickers, and they even had signs on buses asking who killed Bonnie. But sadly, these efforts would be fruitless as the years dragged on without a suspect. 
Now, there were plenty of theories that were floating around. As with usual murder cases, the people closest to Bonnie were looked at first. Like I said, Bonnie did have a boyfriend at the time. There was a little rumble that maybe he had something to do with it, but it was confirmed that he was away in California for college and he was not considered a suspect. Now, Bonnie's stepfather, Gary, he was also looked at because she was staying with him at that time. And even her sister, Samantha, had to ask her father if he had anything to do with the murder. And Samantha would say that, although she didn't necessarily think this, with all the chaos happening, she just needed to hear that her father didn't do this. DNA was taken from him, and it was found out to not be a match to him, thankfully. It's sad to say that Karen would actually blame herself for Bonnie's death because Karen believed Bonnie's murder was linked to her work as an undercover police officer or an undercover worker with the local police. According to her, one of the people that she had recently put into jail during her undercover job was released the same day that Bonnie was murdered. An informant would add to Karen's suspicion when they told her that her family may have been a target because of her undercover work. This informant said the abduction of Bonnie could have been a message to Karen and the police to back off of several members that they arrested. Now, you would think the precautions would be taken to not let these people who she put away know her identity. However, according to Karen, it wouldn't be too difficult for people to learn who implicated them, which I find crazy. That's why I don't think this is a good idea, some undercover, whatever. With this information, Karen met with the lead investigators to pass it along. But Karen promised the informant that she would not tell anyone who gave her this information. And because of this, Karen wouldn't tell the police who gave her this information. And she doesn't believe that police use this as a credible tip then because they didn't take the lead seriously because they didn't have any information. It's like a catch-22 in that situation. I kind of understand both ways. Another tip came in to Karen via one of Bonnie's professors from college. This professor told Karen that she thought one of the students, one of her students, should be looked into more by police. The professor said that this student made several references in his journal prior to Bonnie's disappearance that September 28th would be a very tough day. She would recount that the student showed up to late showed up to class late that day that Bonnie was murdered, dripping wet as if he just showered. So in her mind, he was violent, little weird lateness on the day that Bonnie was murdered. And he was like indicating that this was going to be a hard day that day. The professor told Karen that the students writing were violent prior to Bonnie's death and that they were much more peaceful after she was found murdered. Police did collect his DNA and he was ultimately cleared. There were also some reports that Bonnie had issues with a guy that she had worked with. Bonnie had worked at Sam's Club, like I said, and police learned that she had complained to her supervisor about a co-worker who actually looked up Bonnie's phone number off the Sam's Club computer and then got a hold of her that way, which is super creepy. His DNA was collected and he was also cleared. It was really hard for Bonnie's family. Her mother struggled a lot with the guilt that she may have caused the death of her daughter due to her undercover work. It wouldn't be until 2006 that Karen would finally get the assurance that her career had nothing to do with her daughter's murder. The DNA found on Bonnie was actually matched to a current inmate out of New Hampshire whose name was Kenneth Dion. His name was never heard to police officers prior to this DNA match, and it appears that he was arrested in 2003, but his DNA was not uploaded to CODIS until 2006. Ironically, 
Karen again was on vacation when she heard the news that the DNA hit and was elated that the day had finally came. Police wanted to find out what they could about 36-year-old Kenneth Dion before they flew to New Hampshire to speak with him. First, they wanted to confirm that Kenneth was actually in Alaska at the time that Bonnie was killed because obviously that is step one, making sure he's there. And police were able to verify this using his military record because although he was originally from New Hampshire where he was incarcerated, he was stationed in Anchorage, Alaska in 1990. He would be discharged from the Army in 1992. Around the same time that he was discharged, he would be found guilty of committing three robberies. He would be released from prison in July of 1994, where he was placed on probation, but he would be put right back into prison four months later after violating this probation. And he would stay in prison until he was released in 1996. After his release, it appeared to police that he had returned to his home state of New Hampshire, where he would eventually find himself in prison again. This time, he would plead guilty to two armed robberies, which he was originally charged for four, but due to some plea deal, he would only be convicted of two. From that 2003 conviction, he was sentenced to six to 15 years in prison, which is where his DNA was entered into CODIS. Mind you again, sentenced in 2003, but his DNA was not uploaded until 2006. Boo. At this point, troopers felt like they were ready to go speak with Kenneth so they would fly to New Hampshire and meet him in the prison he was currently serving his time in. During this conversation, police learned that he was stationed in Alaska where he got into trouble. Kenneth told investigators that the day he flew back to New Hampshire, he actually got out of prison in 1996. So like the day he got out of prison, he went right back to New Hampshire. He was done with Alaska. They also learned that he was a fifth degree black belt and at one point in his life he ranked number 10 in a world fighting competition. Police would ask Kenneth if he knew who Bonnie was and he replied he was not aware of who she was and he did not recognize her name or picture. Obviously with the DNA hit it was suspicious that he denied even knowing her but that would be better for police. Unsurprisingly to police Kenneth was unable to provide any type of alibi or where he was at the time Bonnie was abducted and murdered. I would say that it would be hard for me to remember that like I can barely remember last week I'm not sure I'd be able to remember this is in what 2006 remember what I was doing in 1994 the investigators would also interview those that were at one point close to Kenneth either while he was in Alaska or in New Hampshire they previously spoke with a partner of Kenneth who actually had their baby girl within days before Bonnie was murdered. Now, you would think that meant that Kenneth was taking care of his girlfriend or his wife or whatever she was at the time, helping her with a baby, helping her because she just gave birth. But no, like the piece of shit Kenneth is, he disappeared for about a week after the day his daughter was born. And when he returned, he offered no explanation of where he had been. That wouldn't even be an option for me. I'm just saying, a week, no explanation, we'd have some real talking to do. His partner would tell police that he basically got discharged from the army because of his addiction to cocaine, and he was robbing people to keep up with his habit. This partner said that his addiction would only get worse, and when his addiction got worse, his anger issues would get worse, causing her to leave him, and she would file a restraining order against him. Unsurprisingly, though, Kenneth would end up violating this restraining order. Troopers would interview another one of his girlfriends who told them that Kenneth told her that he killed someone and got away with it. According to police, this girlfriend thought he was lying when he said this, like she was basically blowing smoke up his ass or whatever that saying is. The police said, I don't even know. I have to comment, though, on that real fast. If someone you know thinks it's cool to even joke about murdering somebody or think it's cool to, like, say, I killed somebody and got away with it, that's a big red flag and maybe you need to step away from them. 
So with all this information, in April of 2007, Kenneth Dion was indicted on first and second degree murder charges for the murder of Bonnie Craig, but he wouldn't make it to trial until 2011. The prosecution would theorize that Kenneth kidnapped Bonnie from her usual bus stop on the morning of September 28, 1994, where he would sexually assault her and then take her life. Kenneth's defense would say during his trial that he actually did know Bonnie and that the two had a consensual sexual relationship, which included sex prior to her death. But according to Kenneth, the last time he saw her, she was alive. The defense would go on to attempt to make Bonnie look as if she was some sort of promiscuous girl by saying that just a week prior to her death, she flirted with a boy that wasn't her boyfriend. Flirted because that implies that you are sleeping with everybody because you flirted with a boy at 18 years old. As for how she died, the defense would say that maybe she went hiking alone and had accidentally fallen off the cliff, I guess and hit some rocks on her way down, causing the blunt force injuries. Thankfully, the jury did not buy this theory and returned a guilty verdict within hours of starting to deliberate. Kenneth would be sentenced to 124 years in prison, 99 years for the murder conviction and 25 years for the sexual assault. He is currently serving out his time at the Woodland Correction Center and is not set to be released until May of 2029. So math would put him at like 120 years old, I think, or somewhere around there. Math's not my strong suit, but it looks like he will die in there just as he deserves. Now, for Bonnie's mother, Karen, she has made it a point in her life to fight for DNA to be taken at the arrest of felonies rather than after conviction. She has since moved to Florida, where she tries to help implement this in the lower 48 states. And this, sadly, is how this case ends. I want to take a moment to remember Bonnie Craig real fast and how bright she shined in the short 18 years of her life. Now, if you haven't done so, please make sure to like this video, subscribe to the channel for more videos like this. In the description box, you can find ways to support the channel, like buy me a coffee or tips via PayPal. Really helps out the channel. And until the next video, stay safe out there. The world can be an ugly place. Mm -hmm.